at this subject. It began last week, will continue by the grace of God, answering the atheist at the door. The reason why this message is to the nowness of the church, of the body of Christ, is because we are confronted with atheism around us, all around us. This, this common belief that there is no God has not shrunk, ladies and gentlemen. It has increased, and it is increasing. As the love of many wax cold, many more persons are opting out of any traditional belief in any deity, not just God, but anything, but specific to our conversation, God. Psalms 53 and 1 is our root text. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them is gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That is the observation of God spoken through the psalmist, that man without him is completely and totally corrupt and depraved. No matter how good they smell or how good they look, no matter what school or family line, bloodline they come from, any person without Jesus dwelling in them has departed from the nature of God and is a foreigner to him. And it is our understanding, this is what you call a fundamental understanding of the state of humanity. If you understand this, you understand why men do what they do. Without God, you can do anything. There is nothing you can imagine under the sun that cannot be done by a person without God. A person without God, there is no limit. The most, you say, oh, that's despicable. Oh, that's horrible. How can there be a pedophile? How could you think a, a small child is sexually attractive? There are no limits. How could you think it's okay for you, a grown man, grown father, to creep into the bedroom of your own daughter and have sex with her? There are no limits. How can you, a mother, give birth to a child, then boil it and eat it? There are no limits. There's nothing I can say to you about the atrocities of the atrocities of mankind that cannot be explained in this comprehension. Without God, man will do anything and is doing everything. Just in brief, we looked at the categories. And again, as we said last week, these are loose classifications. They are not exhaustive, but they certainly include the four points that we are outlaying. That the atheists in their basic belief being a self-centered focus 
will come in four loose varieties and you will have a mixture of these and some other things added in depending upon their culture, depending on their country of origin, depending on their, their national characteristics. They will have some other things added. But these are the four briefs that they say, the atheists, we have no beliefs per se. We are just people who don't believe in a God. But if you provided enough evidence, we would. That is one classification of an atheistic mindset that would approach you. As you see there displayed, the numbers speak for themselves. 450 to 500 million persons polled as positive atheists or agnostics. And the figures break down. As you can see, the demographics are there. The other type of classification of, of atheistic thought is we just have a different God. That is the approach that you serve uh, or you call God or Jehovah your God. Well, we serve ourselves. There are those who believe in Thor, those who believe in Zeus, those who believe in Greek deities, those who have, there's a, a pantheon of gods. Polytheists believe there are multiple, many gods. So the atheist that comes at it and say, you're just a, a worshiper of a type of God. There are many. So what's the difference between them all? And, and why do you think yours is exclusive to ours? There's the atheistic thought and type that approaches it scientifically and says, we have science. You have faith. And faith, by definition, is blind. So you Christians can't see what you believe in. And we prefer to believe in what we can see. And that's all. That's why I don't believe in God, because I can see the tangible elements. I can see physics. I can see the actions of physics. I can see philosophy at work. I can see nature. I can see the earth core samples. I can see rocks and I can see all these ancient sites. That's what I believe in. It's science. Science is my religion. Even though I'm an atheist, I believe that there's anything, I heard it said today, anything that is pre-existent, it is the universe that is God. The attacking the faith. And the fourth classification, loosely put, is people can be moral without God. This is another argument that I heard just today. That I don't need a God to be moral. I can be good to you without the need of a crutch that you are calling God. This argument is very popular. And this argument is very strong. And what we find is that there, the root of this is locked in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. If you would like to open your Bible and look there. I'll start in chapter 3. And I'll look at verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, Yea, shall not, uh, ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods. Knowing good, this, listen, this is the key point here, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And listen, and the eyes of them both were 
opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So what happened? When Adam and Eve partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that knowledge was passed genetically to every human being who would live thereafter. That's how and why a person who is not born again can be moral. It's the knowledge of good and evil that conducts the morality of the unsaved. Are you understanding? Of the lost. So when you say, as an argument, how can you have morality without God? The atheist is saying, I don't need God to be moral. What you need to do is take them to this verse and show them. You're correct. Your morality is coming from the knowledge of good and evil, which we already know was attained in the book of Genesis. So the Christian has an answer to every question. You just need to know where the answer is. I don't know about you, but I had a, a, a teacher at one point that if you asked them a question, they would say, it's in your book. It's in your textbook. And we would say, well, where is it? And the teacher would say, that's for you to find out. Now, that was the teacher. But I'm telling you now, the answers are in the book. You just need to know where to look in the book to extract the answer. So the morality that you see, the laws of men, when they say, well, we have laws. Where do the laws come from? Every government has its laws. Who originated these laws? They're not Christians. They're not born again. Where? I'm telling you, Genesis chapter 3. The knowledge of good and evil. That's the root of why civilization say, we won't kill our own people. We'll kill those people. We'll take their goods for ourselves. You say, well, that's bad. Yes, but self-preservation, the, the law they're operating on, is coming out of here. How many persons understand that self-harm is a mental illness? If you have a desire to hurt yourself, that's a mental illness in manifestation. It is not natural to want to hurt yourself. Are you understanding? How many times have you gone to the mirror and just took a knife and started stabbing yourself? That's a mental illness, right? So this law of good and evil is in all humanity, even the, the secular or the atheists, right? So as we are approaching and looking at what the atheist is thinking, we're understanding their arguments and we have scriptural defenses for those arguments. In the first case, the one who approaches the atheist and says, if you provide evidence, we would believe you just haven't done the work. We explored that and we understood first that the Holy Spirit brings a conviction on every person. You're not going to witness to anybody without the presence of the Holy Spirit. Unless you are determined to work with the Holy Spirit, your witnessing is vain. It's just words. You need the present tense power of God with you as you are telling persons of Jesus. This is the opening. This is the releasing. From there, we understand that you don't put people off if they don't agree with you. You don't put them off if they have fundamental questions. You answer those fundamental questions they have about Christ. How is that so? As we said last week and last time, if someone asks you, why does God love me? You have the answer. Why does God love you? Why does God love you? 
He created you for his purpose. He loves you because he made you and set his love on you. The reasons why God loves a sinner are the same reasons why God loves a saint. Are you understanding? There's no different. Oh, he loves this one because they're that way and he loves that one. No, no. He loves us all. Are you understanding? Put your hand up if you understand. All right. Okay. So let's move forward from there. Now, evidence for the atheist. We've established that the Holy Spirit has to convict men. What we prayed this morning was very specific. The Bible says that if our gospel is hid, it's the God of this world who has blinded the minds and the eyes of men. Don't worry, I'll read it to you. Right? So if he's blinded them, that means they cannot see. If you're blind, you cannot see. If you can't see this, <laughs> I'll give you the testimony of it. So the evidence that we present, again, you can get the PDF, you can get the transcripts, uh, and put them on your phone or on your laptop or whatever later. So the evidence that we presented is the scripture, is the text, is the word of God. We also have additional evidence that we can offer to any atheist. And I only pulled out four points. There are far more. There are historians, not Christians, secular historians that have commented and have recorded in history the presence of the man Jesus and the existence of the man Jesus in the historical context. So it's not just a Bible story about some fictional character. He is a real living entity who walked the face of the earth and many persons have recorded this fact. Evidence from Tacitus. After the destruction of Rome in AD 64, Tacitus wrote Nero, quote, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Christ, from whom the name had its origins, suffered the extreme penalty. You know what that is. The extreme penalty is crucifixion, is execution. During the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. And that's from the writings of Tacitus, the Annals 1540-44, cited in Strobel, The Case for Christ, page 82. Tacitus wrote what aligns with the Bible, that Christians originated from the belief in Christ. He calls it an evil. We understand it. It was the breakout of the Christian era after Jesus' resurrection. Second piece of evidence comes from Pliny the Younger. To Emperor Trajan, Pliny was the Roman governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor. In one of his letters dated around A.D. 112, he asked Trajan's advice about the appropriate way to conduct legal proceedings against those accused of being what? Christians. Are you seeing here? He's writing a Roman emperor asking, what should I do about these 
pesky persons. His quotation is thus. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. These are the Christians. When they sang in alternate verse a hymn to Christ as to a God. So he understood that they, the Christians, saw Jesus as God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any, not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. This is Pliny, Letters, Translations by William Melmoth, Revelation by W.M.L. Hutchison, Cambridge, Harvard University Press, 1935, Volumes 2, 10, 96, cited in Habermas, The Historical Jesus, page 199. Ladies and gentlemen, you have historical evidence. You have historical evidence of the existence of Jesus. Where are we going with this? That there are multiple ways to prove that Jesus is real, even using secular sources. Are you understanding? The Bible is your first resort. Those who will say, oh, show me, because I've heard this question. Show me outside the Bible that Jesus is real. There you are. The Roman government itself is telling you, we know he existed. They recorded his existence. So if someone says, oh, I don't want to, no, don't show me the Bible. Show me somewhere else that if he's real, if he really existed, surely there would be a record. Hello? Hello? Evidence number three. The evidence from Josephus. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, on two occasions in his Jewish antiquities, he mentions Jesus. Quote, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to to call him a man. For he wrought surprising feats. He's talking about the miracles of Jesus. He was the Christ. When Pilate, what Pilate? The same Pontius Pilate that's referred to by Tacitus. The same Pontius Pilate. Condemned him to be, con to be crucified. Those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. One, uh, so on the third day he appeared this is Josephus writing this. He appeared restored to life. And the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. Now there are those who argue, did Josephus actually write that? All I can tell you, it has been reported that he wrote that. How, how, how much do you believe the historian's writing? How much do you believe anything you read from your university library? How can you prove any of that is true? You have libraries all over the world. Can you verify that everything in those books is accurate and correct? How? Manuscripts that have been recovered are what we're talking about. Their writings have been, the physical properties, are you seeing, have been recovered, and we know these writers existed, and we are cross it's called cross-correlation. What are you doing? You're taking different points that point at the same point, and you're referencing them. If I said to you, you, you a family unit, 
where do you live? And I'm, I'm, I take you over here and I ask you, where do you live? And you give me your address, your postcode. Then I go to your sister or your brother. I say, where do you live? And you give me your address and your postcode. And then I go to the third person. I say the same question, where do you live? Now, I've asked three independent persons where they live, and they all gave me the same address. So this is correlation of evidence. We have ver different writers at different periods writing about the same point and giving you the same information, the same evidence. Are you seeing that? They are agreeing with one another on what the story is. Evidence number four, evidence from Lucian. Lucian of Samosata was a second century Greek satirist. In one of his works, he wrote of the early Christians as follows. The Christians worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites. That's their ceremonies. And was crucified on that account. He was what? Crucified. That's the second reference. Above it, there's another reference and across a different reference to the crucifixion of Christ. It was impressed on them by their original lawgiver, that's Jesus, that they are all brethren from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage. Who's the crucified sage? Jesus. And live after his laws. That's Lucian, the death of Peregrine, 11 to 13 in the works of Lucian of Samosota, translation by W.H. Fowler and F.G. Fowler, fourth volumes, Oxford, Clarendon Press, 1949, volumes four, cited in Habermas, the historical Jesus, page 206. Ladies and gentlemen, I stopped because I saw this. You think that this text is small. I could have made 20 entries on here. There is, there is so much historical evidence for the existence of Christ, it is beyond argument. So not only can you say to the atheists that the Bible tells us only a fool denies him to acknowledge the Son. If you have the Son, you have the Father. So the acknowledgement of Jesus is the acknowledgement of God because Jesus is the Son of God. You cannot have the Son of without having the Father. Are you understanding? So my argument that there is the existence of God is based in part on the existence of his son, Jesus. Oh, you see. So that, that is if you want to go down the road of having that intellectual conversation with the atheist, you have plenty of ammunition for that conversation as well. These are only a few, as I've said, of the many historical writings John 2.23, 1 John 2.23 tells us, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledges the Son hath the Father also. That is the entry. Are you understanding? That is the entry. Father God, give us this grace. Let me say this. Every person will not be called to engage the atheist on the intellectual level. But for those who are, there is sufficient ammunition for you to engage successfully. It will be most likely more so among the younger persons because your age group doubts God in a different way. 
Most older persons have experienced enough of the tribulations of life. They know that there is more. They, they already know that there is more here than just us. You will hit that wall in the atheistic conversation with the person who says, I don't believe. But a person who's been around, even though they're saying, I don't believe, they've seen enough suffering and death and murder to say, this place is out of control. Something is going on. And the, and the explanation of why mankind is so corrupt and there's so much evil will make more sense to them than it will to a lot of young people who will say, I don't believe any of that. It's all hocus pocus. It's all this nonsense. You have history, especially a history major, an archaeology major. And you're talking to them, well, wait a minute, you're digging in the ground, pulling up evidence, pulling up artifacts. I'm showing you evidence and artifacts. Amen. Thank you, Holy Spirit. The second argument from the atheist is we just have a different God. There's a pantheon of gods. You know, you know, pick one. Pick a God. It could be any God. They will throw this up as a way of diverting your focus on Jesus. As you're trying to center in on why is he exclusively God? Why is the belief in Christianity exclusively important? They will throw up. There are many gods. How can you be so sure that yours is the one? Look at the arguments that present themselves. Matthew 6.24 says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. What is Jesus saying? He's not setting up polytheism. He's saying it's either God or it's not. You cannot serve multiple gods. You cannot have this, that, that, and that, and they all be God. No, either God is God or he's not. Are you seeing? No one can serve two masters. Exodus 34, 14. For thou shalt worship no other God. Are you reading this? For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, I heard uh, a, a national speaker say... If God is God, why is he jealous? Well, they were thinking about jealousy in the human type of jealousy. Oh, that's my girlfriend. That's my boyfriend. Don't look at her. Don't call him. That one is mine. And that's the way they thought of God being jealous. And that jealousy is coming out of what? If you know anything about jealousy, you'll know that jealousy comes out of what? Insecurity. Jealousy comes out of insecurity. When you're dealing with an insecure person, they're easily to become jealous. Why? Because they're not certain of where they are in their relationship with you or whomever. So anytime jealousy manifests, you see it as a weakness. Why? Be because you're, you're being a bit needy. If you were confident in your relationship, oh, I saw you talking to this guy. Well, and? Am I or am I not your, your wife? For the young folks, am I, am I or am I not your girlfriend? Well, if you're secure in that relationship, why does it matter? Now, uh, if you say, I saw you being dipped over backwards having a, a snog and a kiss, well, that's, <laughs> that's different. Oh, excuse me. Uh, honey, where'd you put the, uh, the mayonnaise? I know you're kissing right now, but where'd you put the mayonnaise? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll be right back. 
No, we're not talking about that. That's ridiculous. Of course you should say something. But on the level of insecurity, so they were basically accusing God of being insecure. Oh, God is jealous. He must be insecure. He must be weak. Why is he jealous? Godly jealousy means I have birthed you for myself. And I don't want you destroyed by intermingling with another. Are you understanding? I don't, I don't want you to be spoiled by playing with the devil. I don't want you to be made impure by entangling yourself with him. So when he says, I am jealous over you, I don't want you going to false gods. What comes from false gods? Give me, throw out something. What comes from false gods? False doctrine. False communication. What is doctrine? Communication. Belief. What you believe, you act on. So if your doctrine is false, your actions are false. If you believe wrongly, you act wrongly. So God is saying, I don't want you entangled in something wrong. Are you understanding? And coming here, we say, God is jealous that way. Not he's jealous because he's weak or insecure, but because he loves and wants to protect. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Not multiple, not polytheistic, one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord, thy God, with all thy heart. How much is all? With all thy soul and with all thy might. So what part is being held back? Nothing. Nothing. When you say all, that's all. Oh, darling, I love you with all my heart, except on Monday about 9.30. But at the rest of the time, <laughs> it's football. <laughs> yeah, it's football. No, I love you without ceasing. I love you without limit. You are the first and the last. You are my everything. You're my all in all. There is no one above you. I place nothing in front of you, Daddy God. Everything I have, I present to you. That's all. And that's what he wants. That's the relationship he wants. Amen. This makes God, in the eyes of the atheist and the agnostic, God then becomes the uncaused cause. What does that mean? He is the cause of everything, yet he himself has no cause. The scientists argue that time and space are meshed together and that they exist together. Therefore, the universe is the oldest thing you can look at. The Christian says, no, before time and before space, there is God. He is the uncaused cause. He is the one who caused time to come into being. He is the one who caused space to come into being. And that time and space are creations of God. Are you understanding? Mm -hmm. He's not in the time. He's not in our, our chronograph system. He's not on the dial. Well, God will show up at some... <laughs> Before you got to where you were going, he was there. Amen. Oh, I hope the Lord shows up. <laughs> he's, already, <laughs> he's already there. He, he's omnipresent. He's all places simultaneously, right? So God is the uncaused cause. 
This comes to, I'll give you a technical term for those who like technical terms. The Kalam cosmological argument. I was listening to this gentleman just this morning, Dr. William Lane, Lane Craig. He's a, a Christian apologist, and he lays out his argument this way. This is the gist of it. Three things, three simple points you can easily remember. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause. Simple, simple argument. Anything you see had to begin to exist, right? And if it began to exist, something had to cause it to exist. What is that thing? That is God caused all things to be. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, when the atheist says the universe is the oldest thing, your answer is no. Before the universe, there is God. He is the uncaused cause. Men do not like the thought of something else having more power than them. They hate it. They, they hate it. And they say to you as a Christian, I don't want to believe that. What you will hear in the conversation with the atheists are a lot of eyes. I don't think. I don't believe. I don't believe that. I think this. I th and they will continually give you I, 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 I. And you have to step back and say there is something beyond your eye. Him. There is something greater than you at work here. And you can ask some subtle questions like, were you born? <laughs> Mr. Atheist, were you born? They're going to try to say, oh, this is a trick question. No, it's a simple question. Were you born? And they will say, finally, they might say, yes. So, did you birth yourself? Did you, do you have any recollection in your mind of when you decided to come to earth? Then you have a cause. You have a cause. Can you tell me the day you're going to die? Just write it down on a piece of paper, if you don't mind. Can you be a little bit more specific? Either they say, I'm, I'm going to commit suicide. I say, well, okay, when? <laughs> what time exactly? Do you, can you pronounce the very second when you're going to die? Then you obviously are not God, and you have a creator. Oh, you understand? Everything that exists had to have a cause. God is that cause. Ephesians 3, 9. And to make all men see. What? See. What is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created what? All things by Jesus Christ. He is the uncaused cause. God is the reason for everything that you see and you cannot see. Everything that the scientist discovers was created by God. Every molecule, every atom, every small insect, every bird, every discovery that man, that's why they call it discovery. You're discovering what's already there. Whatever scientific genetic experience or experiment proves was already there. 
To the Christian, it's simple. To the unbeliever, this is a very big deal. And they argue from the point of, I don't believe it, therefore it is not. Ladies and gentlemen, the scripture we quoted earlier now comes into play. If our gospel is hid, the God of this world has blinded the eyes, the mind of them. So when you're praying through, you have to pray for the breaking of that darkness. You cannot just go in there thinking, if I explain it to you and I say it cleverly enough, they'll believe. No, there is a darkness that is there that the enemy has put on the eyes of men and women. You are fighting against that darkness. You are standing against that blindness that prevents men from seeing the truth. It has to be torn down. I could ask the same thing about any Christian. Why do some persons get revelation from God really easily, quickly? What's the difference between you and I? Why are you not standing here saying this as opposed to me standing here saying this? There's no physical difference between us, is there? No, you have the capacity to hear everything from God. You have the capacity to receive Everything from God. There's nothing stopping you. Nothing hindering you from knowing more about God's word daily, hourly. Nothing. 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 You've got to understand it. There's nothing hindering you from having the revelation. There's nothing in your mind. There's nothing in your family, your genes, your skin color, your history. There's nothing preventing you Amen. from knowing more about the creative power of God, the creator of the universe himself. Nothing. This is right in front of us. It's hidden in God. And he reveals to whom he will. And those who seek him, find him. Who thirst after him. Who desire him. Colossians 1, 16, 17. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, both visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. What does that mean? His agency is holding it all together. Supernatural superglue. You take God out, it all falls apart. God is holding the elements together. The air that you're breathing in and out of your lungs, he's holding it together. The rhythm of your heart circulating the blood through your veins and back into the other ventricle of your heart. One ventricle opens and another releases. That's God right now. And every person who does not acknowledge him, he's right now causing them to see that marvelous computer you call a brain to calculate multiple milliseconds of information. Glory to God. Jesus, I wish I had the words. My Father, it is so incredible. That is the testimony of God in the human being. Father, in Jesus' name. Daddy, in Jesus' name. Let us stand together. Father, in Jesus' name, that this great revelation would go into the people of God.
that we would see what you are saying, that we would hear what you are speaking, that we would understand your word and your call on our lives, that we be agents, Daddy God, of salvation, that you move through us in the ministry of reconciliation to win the lost back to yourself. Help us understand so we can help others to see as we are praying for the lost day and night, Daddy God, that they may come to Jesus. Give us the comprehension of your word and a desire to spread it in Jesus' name. Find your neighbor, find your friend, and tell them we serve one God. Hey, we serve one God. Hallelujah.